Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So, world without fathers, or life without fathers, question mark. That didn't get in there. It's a question. (laughs) Um, But I'll start with uh, uh, a a word or two about what we said last night, because I gave a session last night on, is there a war on men? And so we considered that question. We concluded that there is, in case you were wondering. And we realize that this war has resulted in what is really a crisis of masculinity. In this session, we will explore what the research reveals as one of the main causes of that crisis. Perhaps it is even the origin of it. But after reflecting on my comments last night and seeing how it kind of depressed everybody, I want to start by saying a little bit about my own purpose in speaking about men and fathers at a conference on the theme of femininity. I used to give talks quite frequently on the feminine genius, and I still will if pressed to do so. They could be fun, usually wine was involved, and we would all affirm the existence of that genius, and the jokes I made about my husband's foibles almost always got a good laugh. But then I became kind of uncomfortable with it. As I noticed, it was turning into its own sort of strange Catholic feminism, right? The word genius is a little problematic, all right? So I began to agree to speak only about complementarity. I began to see very clearly that the feminine genius cannot be understood apart from the genius of men. And I will explain further what I mean by that later on today. You'll have to come to that talk to hear about it. (laughs) So as Dr. Norton mentioned last night, yes, there definitely is one. But as I proceeded to, to develop this theory and I became more and more interested in the situation of men in our culture, I began to notice how... Um, surprised and gratified the men in the audience were that someone was actually saying out loud how important they are in the common enterprise of human community. And I have concluded that neither woman nor man will find their place independently of the other. We have to rediscover it together. And what an ideal place to do that here at the University of Steubenville at this very conference. My research has put so many things into perspective, from my relationship to my husband, the father of my daughter, to my own father, to my male colleagues. I think it is essential to the, to the success of this project to acknowledge the genius of men in our lives and to present the facts so that they inform our deliberations here. I, I'll say this again tonight or later on today, but if it weren't for men, we would still be living in caves, afraid to come out. So I was the oldest of six kids, and since I was the oldest, I usually got the task of working alongside my father in the yard on his many, many, many projects. I learned how to use a hammer, a drill, a shovel, and a pickaxe from him. I learned the exhilaration of hard physical work. 
But I worked also for him in his store and watched as he served his customers with concern and care. That is, I learned from my father how to work and how to serve. Right now, as we enter into my more formal remarks, if you will, I would like to invite you to think about what your life would be like without your own father, the perhaps silent impact he had on you, and then consider the situation I am going to describe and what follows here. I'm going to be citing some statistics as we go, but I would invite you to remember that at the origin of those statistics are real people, children, moms, dads, and um, not, not just numbers. They're actual people at the heart of that. So we're going to speak now about a phenomenon that is startling in its proportions and frightening in its implications, the possibility of life without fathers. In 1995, sociologist David Blankenhorn wrote a book called Fatherless America, Confronting Our Most Urgent Social Problem. It is still considered the Bible of the fatherhood movement. Like all research of this kind, some of his facts are a bit dated, but the more current data simply demonstrates the truth of his conclusions more dramatically. Things have only gotten worse. What Blankenhorn demonstrates is that the United States is increasingly becoming a fatherless society. This was already obvious in 1995. A generation ago, most children could expect to grow up with their father in the home. Today, sadly, most children can expect not to, at least for some part of their childhood. It's probably different for the people here at Steubenville, but the world out there is characterized by fatherlessness. We'll talk about that, obviously. Blankenhorn writes about this trends and trend and posits that men are necessary to healthy family life and the successful upbringing of children. It was kind of a tentative proposal, and he was saying, "This is maybe we should be worried about this, right? Um, <clears throat> in fact, he argues that fathers are indispensable, and unless we as a society recapture the idea and value of fatherhood, our society will continue to disintegrate with devastating consequences for all. That is happening, right? So Blankenhorn's uh, aim is to find out why fatherhood is declining and what can be done about it. And his thesis is, he states, a good society celebrates the ideal of the man who puts his family first. So the question in this session is, what is the source of the crisis in masculinity in our culture? The answer I am proposing is that it is really a crisis of fatherhood. I think it goes without saying that the sexual revolution made vic victims out of both men and women. The advent of the pill and other forms of contraception, the ready availability of abortion, the hookup culture, this has reduced the sexual act, the properly marital act, to a mere instinctive and biological reality. I was once, once teaching a discussion on the church's teaching on a whole host of issues, and we eventually zeroed in on her teaching on sexuality. A fine, upstanding Lutheran professor, he was taught at this Catholic university, had no real problem with the Catholic identity of the university. He said, and I quote, I don't know what the fuss is all about. 
After all, it's only bodies. A more apt description of Cartesian dualism could not be found, and how I wish I could give you a lecture on that. <laughs> we don't have time for it. But the point is, of course, we are not only bodies. We're a union of body and soul, and it is never only bodies. Every person is a union of body and soul, both immaterial and material, and every act, every single act, <coughs> implicates the whole of who I am. So it is readily apparent what this attitude toward the body does to women. The signs are all around us. But we can't forget that that development that began in the 60s and has gained steam ever since also reduces men to animals. And only animals have sex without thinking about it. Men are victims too, even though many of them think they benefited somehow from the sexual liberation of women, because in fact it has destroyed their capacity to see the entirety of who they are. Now we can lay a good portion of the blame at the feet of the, of the radical feminist movement, and I do, but we ha do have to remember, as Dr. DeSoleni was just mentioning, at least at the beginning of the feminist movement, the first wave of feminism, these were women who were fighting for the right to vote, to be recognized as something other than the property of their fathers or husbands. It hasn't been quite a hundred years, you know, that women got the vote and were no longer considered property in this country. No one gets their own set of facts. <laughs> okay. So... Um, John Paul II's letter to women includes a lengthy apology to the women who have been ignored or forgotten or oppressed over the centuries. Women who bought into the new vision of sexuality in the 50s and 60s need our understanding and compassion. They thought they were free at last. But that was because they bought the idea that the norm of human behavior was that of a teenage boy. But what has been the result of this colossal error? Where has the sexual revolution led us? To no-fault divorce? To the assumption that the sexual act is merely a biological reality? And to an idea of manhood that separates men from the consequences of their sexual activity? Women went along, on it, along with it on the mistaken notion that freedom means sexual freedom. And so here we are. Perhaps one of the biggest factors, and one that really can arguably be laid at the feet of the so-called feminist movement, is the absence of men from young boys' lives. Half of all boys grow up without a father in the home. They have fewer male teachers, and there are fewer and fewer real heroes. I'm just going to restate a few of the facts I mentioned last night. More than 30 million children in the U.S. do not have a father living with them. 90% of all runaway and homeless children are from fatherless homes. If you see somebody on the street, there's a very good chance they came from a, from a fatherless home. More than 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. At least 85% of all youths in prison grew up in, fa in a fatherless home. The impact on boys is visible in the data. For every 100 girls between the ages of 15 and to 17 in correctional facilities, there are 837 boys. For every young woman ages 20 to 24, 
there are, uh, for every one young woman, there are 1,450 young men. So you put that together with the fatherless home phenomenon and things start to take shape. Now, I don't have time. If you want to ask about it at the end, it's even more dramatic in the African-American community. So this matters because, as family structure researchers Sarah McClanahan and Isabel Sowell note in The Future of Children just recently, most scholars now agree that children raised by two biological parents in a stable marriage do better than children in other family forms across a wide variety of outcomes. The worst thing that can happen to a child is for their parents to divorce. All that nonsense about, yes, but we were fighting, it wasn't the right environment. Work it out, is what the people will tell you. It turns out that the effects of family instability are measurably worse for boys than for girls. And worst of all, for African-American boys. In a landmark new study, a research team headed by MIT's David Otter and Northwestern University's David Filio, it, they find that relative to their sisters, boys born to poorly educated, unmarried mothers have higher levels of truancy and behavioral problems throughout elementary and middle school, are less likely to graduate from high school, and are more likely as juveniles to commit serious crimes. Many of the gaps between brothers and sisters are larger for blacks than for whites. Now why is this? The research team finds that boys' problems are far more behavioral than they are cognitive. For example, truancy and classroom disciplinary, disciplinary issues lead to suspensions which play the largest role in explaining the boy-girl high school graduation gap. But the presence of fathers in the household substantially reduces the gaps between boys and girls in absences and suspensions. It turns out that boys need fathers as well as mothers even more than girls do and suffer more when fathers are absent from their lives. The researchers study and reject the hypotheses that these differences reflect higher prenatal sensitivity to factors such as stress or poor nutrition, or that they are entirely attributable to dangerous neighborhoods and poor schools. There are independent effects of family background that contribute to the large gaps between boys and girls. And in fact, the researchers conclude that neighborhoods and schools are less important then in here, this is a quote, the direct effect of family structure itself, in particular on boys. Now before we go much further, let me make this one very important point. The single most important person in a little girl's life is her father. The research also shows, and you can get this book by Meg Meeker, Dr. Meg Meeker Boys, um, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. <clears throat> I've given Andrew, as it, my husband, it turns out, two copies of that book. He said, you already gave me this book. I said, oh, okay. Sorry. I just want to be sure you had it. <laughs> um, it. The research shows that little girls whose fathers respect them and affirm them are less likely to engage in sexual promiscuity. They're less likely to abuse drugs. They're less likely to do a whole host of destructive things, right? And it makes sense, the women in the room, I'm sure, understand this. My dad loves me, I'm good. 
if he rejects me or, or is passive toward me or not affirming, I'm not too sure. And I might spend the rest of my life trying to affirm myself in ways that simply don't work, right? Okay, so we don't have too much time to go into that, but it seemed important to say. <laughs> so let's return to Blankenhorn for just a moment. <clears throat> he goes through an extensive analysis, starting with colonial times, on the role of the fa that fathers have played throughout history, and he maps the devolution that has taken place, especially since the 60s. During the period of 1960 to 1990 in the U.S., the number of children living apart from their biological fathers increased from 17% to 36%. At that rate, about 50% of children in the U.S. in 95 would have been living without their fathers. The cause for this was twofold, divorce and out-of-wedlock childbearing. By 1992, 37% of female-headed homes were caused by divorce, in another 36% of female-headed homes, the parents never even married. In 1960, out-of-wedlock childbirths accounted for 6% of all births. When it was published in 95, Blankenhorn reported that the number was one-third of all births. Here is some current data. Preliminary data for t is only available for 2012. These data indicate the number is 40.7% of all 2012 births were out of wedlock. And there was a vast difference among racial and ethnic groups. Among non-Hispanic blacks, the figure is highest at 72.2%. You say these figures publicly, and people are going to get upset with you because somehow it's racist. Again, no one gets their own set of facts. We know that community is systematically destroying itself. There's, there's murders every day in Chicago. You know, maybe you guys haven't heard about this because I'm just, that's not a very good joke, actually. I'm sure you have. You know what I'm saying? So you make these connections. For American Indians or Alaska Natives, it's 66.9%, 53.5% for Hispanics, 29.4% for non Hispanic whites, and for Asian and Pacific Islanders, it's 17.1%. But the point is that since Blankenhorn wrote, these statistics have only gotten worse. But that's not all. Blankenhorn surveys the most urgent social problems, crime, violence, teen pregnancy, child sexual abuse, domestic violence against women, poverty, drug <coughs> abuse, etc., and demonstrates that fatherlessness is the leading indicator of each of these issues. So I only have time to give you uh, the highlights of several of these um, factors. First of all, youth violence. Blankenhorn identifies the common thread in the increased amount of youth violence, and he says, again, that it's fatherlessness. He goes so far as to state a general rule. Boys raised by traditionally masculine fathers generally do not commit crimes. Fatherless boys commit crimes. The reason is that both clinical studies and anthropological investigations confirm that boys seek to separate from their mothers in search of the meaning of maleness, in this process, the father is irreplaceable. When this process of male identity does not succeed, one main result in clinical terms is rage. Another result is hypermasculinity, boys who must prove their manhood all by themselves. 
Current findings show that children living apart from their fathers are far more likely to be expelled or suspended from school, display emotional and behavioral problems, have difficulty getting along with peers, and get into trouble with the police. Now, Blankenhorn has a whole lot to say about domestic violence and sex abuse in the home. And I wish I had time to tell you the whole entire story, but what it boils down to is this. The discourse in our culture around domestic violence and sex abuse in the home is usually to accuse men of being the perpetrators. And of course, this is often the case, right? Sexual abuse and domestic violence are often things that are perpetrated on children by men. But what it doesn't reveal, what it doesn't <laughs> highlight, what it does not distinguish is that it's not men, it's boyfriends. Fathers do not, in general, abuse their children or beat up their wives. Married men, in general, do not do that. Most of this domestic violence and sex abuse that does happen is, is being perpetrated on the children by transient boyfriends, right? We don't talk about um, men, married men that way. Uh, we, now we talk about significant others, right, or partners, so that we just use the word partner, well, her, her partner did it. Well, what kind of partner was that? They, a man she was not married to. And the, the man comes in, and he thinks her daughter is really pretty, and you're getting kind of old, so I'm just going to take it. We've all seen these things on the cop shows, right? So, okay. It must be true then. <laughs> Another not very good joke. Okay. So there's more to that story than we have time for. Sec another thing we don't have a lot of time for, poverty. Because there's a whole lot of statistics we could relate there. But here's the punchline. The single most um, indicative, indicative indica the, the single indicator, <laughs> sorry, can you rewind the tape? <laughs> the single indicator of whether or not a family is going to be living below the poverty line, guess what it is? Anybody want to guess? The lack of a father in the home. That's right. A woman living without the father of her children in the home is five or six times more likely to be living behind, below the poverty line than a woman living with her husband, right? An intact family, yeah. So it used to be, when Langenhorn was writing, they could just correlate these two things. There seemed to be a correlation. It's now understood to be causal. It is literally causal. That if there's no married father, a man living with a, his wife, with his children in the home, there's a, a, a that, that family will most likely be poor. Yeah. So, um, I have six minutes. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's just talk a little bit about what Blankenhorn refers to as the unnecessary father, and then I'm going to close with some hopeful things from Cardinal Scola, because there are some things we can say about the role of fathers in the home that will give us something to go on besides all this dark information. Over the past 200 years, fatherhood has been in decline, as he points out, and it lost uh, in full or in part each of its traditional roles. Head of the family, breadwinner, moral educator, protector. And many today uh, believe that a father is simply unnecessary. 
the experts, the discourse, and you guys all know about this, right? I mean, the women that are having babies by being inseminated by um, from sperm banks. It's just, it's just mind-boggling uh, how far we could go with this. Um, uh, but um, in general, they assume that fatherhood is superfluous, that children need a parent, not necessarily a father. And actually, I, I don't have any more time, do I? Because you want time for questions. I forgot about that part. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe that's enough on that. I mean, you can, set, you can realize just from your own reading of the newspaper or watching TV or the movement of the gay agenda and all this, the, the way, the direction that we're moving is not toward a return to fatherhood by any means. In fact, fathers and mothers are now considered to be interchangeable. Okay. So uh, the, 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 diff, the dangers in the uh, gay agenda don't um, just stop at the concern we all have for a recognition of traditional or natural marriage. It'll end up really destroying all the uh, natural distinctions that we make between mothers and fathers, men and women. Um, so I'm just going to skip to say one thing about uh, Angelo Scola's idea on this. Sorry for the abrupt, don't get whiplash, everybody, okay? <laughs> but I forgot that you might need, have some questions. I forgot about that part. So, um, <clears throat> okay, so we're kind of in a mess. But if you look at what the church teaches about fathers, for one thing, there's plenty to go on. But I thought I would just present to you this one um, theory that Cardinal Angelo Scola suggests in his book called The Nuptial Mystery. And he has all sorts of profound things to say there about the fact that the father is the person, the, uh, the figure in the family who makes clear to the child that they are not the origin of their own existence. <laughs> yeah. I came from a, the union between my mother and the, my father. They finally figured that out. But the father is generative. <coughs> Our father in heaven is generative. Christ is generative. Priests are generative on the order of grace. And I'm here because my father acted in a, in a certain way to conceive me, right? Now, this isn't there's more to say about women, but this is an essential thing to realize. That children without a father start to think that maybe I appeared out of nowhere, right? They don't say that to themselves, but that's sort of the impression that they're left with. So that's one thing, and there's plenty of things we could say about that. But what Scola does, is he, he claims that there's two laws that need to be respected in order for any child to fulfill themselves. And the first is the law of gratuity, and the second is the law of exchange. And the mother's job in the family is to introduce the child to the love, to law of gratuity. The recognition that the child is loved no matter what they do, and this became really clear last night as I was talking with Andrew on the phone. Maddie had done something wrong, and I was, I'm from Ohio saying, no, honey, remember. He's like, <laughs> not, not really like that, but you know, metaphorically speaking. And it, was, it just becomes really obvious. My job is to make sure no matter what happens, Maddie feels loved, right? And she knows that she's loved, and that she knows that what she's called to do is love. The father's job is to introduce the child to the law of exchange, which is the idea that nothing is free. There's consequences for what you do, right? 
in um, the, the profundity, I recommend that book to you, even if you just check it out of the library and look up the part about fatherhood. If you're interested in those topics, you can see how much I was going to tell you. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but the, those two ideas, I think, are extremely profound and essential. If you're interested in the complementarity we're going to talk about later, uh, there it is right there. The job of the father is to teach the child to work and to serve, to show them the exhilaration that comes from accomplishing a task. Not that women don't. Obviously, we do. But that's what the father is to do. So... <clears throat> Um, I have a few things I would say by way of closing about the role that um, fathers play in general. Blankenhorn did focus studies, and he revealed um, very similar things to what Scola says from a sociological point of view about the job of the father. But it turns out that the job of the father in general, or, or, or in the broad sense, is to help the child discover what it takes to live a life fully fulfilled, <coughs> to show them the way to help them be ready to face the life God has in mind for us in the end. Um, so my, my closing thought to you would be to remember that that is actually the job of God the Father in heaven, to help us, prepare us to, to face the life he has in mind for us and to stick with us throughout a, a, a lifetime. Um, and the truth is that without fathers, as without God, we lose our way. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.